This is a Rooster Teeth production. In the year 1822, a Virginia innkeeper was given a locked box that he was told not to open for 10 years. Decades later, he finally opened it to see that it contained ciphers which pointed to the location of buried treasures. These ciphers have become some of the most puzzling codes in history and have never been solved completely. Today, we dive into the bewildering mystery of the Beale ciphers. This is Red Web. Task Force, it is Mystery Monday, so that means we got another episode of Red Web. So welcome back. I'm your resident mystery enthusiast, Trevor Collins, walking my good friend, Alfredo Diaz, through this mystery as he hears it for the first time. Fredo, we're in the early 1800s. Yeah, and so automatically, you know, I'm I'm shifting through the different profiles in my head and going, right. okay, the, a lot of the tech is just get wiped out off the board. Exactly. Um, yep. And so, yeah, getting my head settled into the time period, I will say... I'm a sucker for like treasure mysteries. Oh, it's, it's been a while. It's so cool. Yeah. It, it, it's just, I don't know. It's what you see in movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't think it's real, but obviously it's based off of reality. Right. And it's just not something you experience these days. Like who just happens to come across a treasure map? That's not a thing that happens oh, I, I in, love rea- in reality anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. And this this feels very national treasure. And there's something so on the nose that makes it feel like national treasure. We'll get there in a second. And mm-hmm. it's wild how it comes to pass. But yeah, this is a lockbox that was told, given to an innkeeper, told never to open, uh, except for like 10 years on. And uh, and that's where our mystery begins. Big question for me, actually, now that I think about it, a lot of big questions, is uh-huh. who's giving this? We got like, the name. It's oh, Beal. Ooh, it's nice. Yeah. So we know some elements of it. Oh, okay. Well, but, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, but like yeah. it automatically right off the right. rip, like who is giving someone just... Like, I don't know, a cipher to a treasure. Right. Like that's, Here's a mystery box, stranger man. Right. Do not open it. That's, that's kind of like a big thing, a big action. Right. Um, why 10 years? Why 10 years? And I, I like, I got, I'm starting, starting to think now, like, you know, you did say that this hasn't been solved. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking in my head, is it not solved because it's so difficult? Or is it just so much nonsense that it doesn't make sense? Right. Where it's like, it's impossible to solve because none of it actually connects to anything. Yeah. But that's where Very my good at. questions off the top. Let's see how the history of this mystery elucidates those questions, and then we'll talk about the investigation. And as always, we'll then go into the theories to attempt to see how the world has tried to solve this unsolved mystery. All right. All right. So here's how the legend goes, because it is quite old, a lot of word of mouth, 200 years old at this point. So the legend goes that in 1822, a man by the name of Thomas J. Beale checked into Washington Hotel in Lynchburg, Virginia. This was Beale's second time staying at this hotel for what it's worth. Before checking out, Beale left a locked metal box with Robert Morris, the hotel owner and otherwise a total stranger to Beale. There's no connection between the two men. Beale told Morris not to open the box unless he did not return to the hotel for over 10 years. Essentially, and we've talked about this concept before, like a dead man switch. If I continue to come to this hotel, don't open it. But if it goes 10 years without me being here, go ahead and open it. I just, it, how do you trust someone that is so random to your life? Right. And if it's important, are you going to give somebody this box and trust mm-hmm. that they open it? 
They could just bin it or forget it. They they could. That being said, though, I mean, if they do open it, it's a whole cipher. Like you have to like beautiful mind that thing. You know that's what I mean? Very it's true. not something that's like you know what? I'm just gonna take a peek. You're I'm gonna, just gonna look take at it. You're gonna be confused. Yeah. And they're, then you're just gonna close it. Right. You're, you you'll be like, I should have waited those ten years. Right. The 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 interesting thing though is like, does Beal not have like a copy or something like that? Like Ooh. like why entrust it to this person? Because then the scare there is if that's like your one copy of like the cipher this person could just throw it away right i i'm but very if you have copies then why give it away in the first place so you, you get yeah. where i'm at with that yeah yeah i'm with you on that one that's interesting but basically what happened is 10 years later morris reportedly decided not to open the box in fact he didn't open the box until 1845 23 years after receiving the box so 10 years came and passed without seeing beale at the hotel but he continued to wait. But upon opening it, he sees a letter and three ciphertexts or cryptograms. We've talked about those in the past, but basically three different pieces of paper with numbers written down. So it would mm -hmm. be like 115, comma 68, comma 27, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the letter itself detailed an expedition that Beale had taken in 1817, before the box had even been made, five years prior, in fact. Now, according to the pamphlet, Thomas J. Beale was said to have led a group of about 30 men from the state of Virginia to New Mexico on a hunting expedition in search of buffalo. It was on this expedition that they stumbled into a mine rich with gold and silver, after which, of course, they abandoned their hunting mission and decided to strip mine this area for riches. Oh, yeah. 100%. Who wouldn't drop everything right? they're doing? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, This is a, this is a movie. This is like it a feels like a this, movie. This feels like the plot to a movie. Absolutely. If it wasn't April Fool's, I would think that you guys are reading a script. You know what I mean? Like a synopsis of a script. But I don't know. Like maybe it's just me and I'm a sucker for treasures. But like that just sounds like the most realistic, coolest thing. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not super far-fetched. Right. For that time period for it's you to come across. It's around the gold across. rush, right? The California gold rush was from 1848 to 1855. All right. So we're, like we're on just, the eaves of it. Oh, I mean, there's no better time than the eve of the gold rush, right. man. Like, just with stocks, right? You want to get in untouched. before. Right. Ooh. No one knows about it. That being said, putting your mindset in this, right? Mm -hmm. I would be excited yet terrified. Yes. Like, because that's not something that you can just pick up and take with you right away. It literally reminds me of that movie to come. I think it's pronounced Sisu, S-I-S-U, mm -hmm. that movie where somebody stumbles into a huge vein of gold and then has to get it somewhere. Yeah, that's that's sketchy. Anyone stops you, robs you, whatever. Right. You're, you're not going to have that. someone post up there and do shifts. But then again, you also don't want someone to get it, but you want it yourself. And it's going to take so much time to get through it. Mm -hmm. And so that's it's it's also like pretty terrifying. Yeah. Real quick, the uh, the keeper. Like the level of patience to wait twenty something years, right? I don't think our generation, uh, like generations near us, could wait at all. Right? At all? Right? It's interesting, and we don't know exactly why they waited. It's possible that they forgot about it. It's possible that they didn't really care much about it, and it was tucked away on a shelf somewhere. And maybe they saw it when they moved. But twenty three years—there's just a no long way. Time. There's no way. I, I, I think it's patience. Patience. How do you forget hmm. about? That's that's such a unique moment in someone's life yeah that moment i feel like it's something that someone will remember for the rest of their life that's that's a that's a good point also the, like the flip side real quick before we get back into it, it i mean at some point i think is this dangerous to hold on to Ooh, you know? that's a that's a very compelling question yeah, it, so. it's definitely schrodinger's box and you don't know if it's going to be something valuable or not that's yeah. a very interesting point 
So coming back to this mine, 18 months of stripping this mine down for all of its goodies. I mean, that's a year and a half. Beal spent and his team getting all this gold and silver. And then they eventually returned the treasure back to Lynchburg, back in Virginia, where the whole expedition began. Upon reaching Lynchburg, he buried the treasure in a secret location. And this is when Beale first stayed at the Washington Hotel and first met Morris. Again, they're mostly strangers, but upon his second visitation to this hotel is when he sees Morris again and, and recognizes him. And so we'll kind of get into why he chose Morris. We don't have a deep reason, but a light reason as to why he chose Morris to have this box. Now, at the end of winter, Beale left his hotel to rejoin the men and continue mining. He went another 18 months before deciding to take the treasure once again back to Lynchburg. His men at this point began worrying that if something were to happen to them, their families would never receive any of this wealth. So, of course, Beale was instructed to find a trustworthy person to carry out the wishes in the event of their death. That is to say, if this team of diggers, miners, ex-hunters, essentially, were to go missing or die or somehow get detached from this treasure, they would want someone somewhere to know where the treasure was to then give it to the families, just as a safety net, as it were. So, I mean, they've spent, what, probably three years, like, digging. Like, it's like 18 months. Stints, pretty much. Like, two 18-month stints. Yeah. Pretty much. Just, like, rough timeline. Right. I think there was some time off between, but yeah, right. three, yeah. three and a half years, something I, like that. I think, like, the big question for, for me is, like, why stash it and not just divvy it up and mm. then... From there, why not divvy it up and hold and, it with your families and hold it with your families? Or like, if you want it to go to your family, so they have money, sell the thing off now. Do you think that this calls into question the existence of the treasure? Perhaps. Ooh, I don't know if I'd go that far. Okay. Um, but I mean, it's a valid question. If you're finding this good, oh, good treasure, and you're worried, why bury it? Right. Or is it so much that you're like, oh my god, we don't want to get robbed, or we don't want to like, you know, whatever. Let's tuck it away but, Ron but over Swanson the style. course of like three years I feel like you have so much time to delegate that sell it mm. uh, I mean you could if you're just overly paranoid go to different states and sell the thing Dang. you know Real like have like. have other people like sell it for you and you know what I mean like if it's that much I don't know like it, the whole holding on to it is a little weird now to me especially mm. since they very much have a direction for and and it seems like in unison as to where this is going to yeah families right right so now you know the team has got a little bit of a worry to them and instead of just setting up a straight will i mean you don't want to say the treasure's here because then any ne'er-do-well could crack into that oh yeah and so this is where morris enters the picture beale selected him to be that trustworthy person he's like listen he's been consistently working at this hotel over many months many years i don't know deeper beyond why he chose Morris other than that familiarity. But he's like, hey, I mean, he works here in Lynchburg, probably been here for a minute. I'm going to give it to him. He's a regular guy that I can trust. Did all of his best friends go on this hunting trip with Maybe. him? Like, how how is it that you'd have no one else that you could reliably give this to? Very because good Because what question. happens if he leaves the hotel? Like, I'm sure maybe they gave exchange contact information. It just seems like such a big, life-changing thing to entrust to someone You've met a couple times. Absolutely. Like, why not a cousin or Absolutely. a best friend? You know what I mean? To me, it starts to call into question maybe some of the origin of all of this. You know, like, it. I don't know. It's it's compelling. I don't understand it, but it's compelling. Right. I, I, there, there definitely is some fishy moves as to why these directions. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, if I was in the situation 
you know, I wouldn't leave the cipher with Christian. I'd leave it with you. You know what mm. I mean? Well, a chair doesn't have hands. Exactly. It's oh. difficult. I live a hard life. <laughs> <laughs> so opening this box now, remember, 23 years after receiving it, Morris looks in and he sees that there's a letter and also the three ciphers that the letter talked about. These ciphers contain the information necessary to find the hidden treasure. The first cipher is said to contain the location of the treasure. The second is a description of what the treasure contains. And the third would reveal the names of the owners and their relatives. Essentially a very, very cryptic will of some, of some sort. I'll be honest. All you need to really do is crack the first cipher. And that's the one that is yet to be cracked. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So two out of the three have been cracked. One of the three has been cracked. One of the three? Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into it, and, I, and I'll read you selections of the second cipher is the one, spoiler alert, that was uh, decoded. Very interestingly done, by the way. And we'll, we'll let's, So let's just walk into that. Morris opens it 23 years after getting the box, reads the letter, sees the ciphers, is very confused, but of course now gets the idea of what's going on here. Morris then spent 20 years trying to decipher the code, but was unable to do it and eventually passed it to an unnamed friend. Wait, 20 years after waiting 20 years? Yes. Oh my God. So he has the box for 23 years, cracks it open, and then spends 20 years after that trying to decipher this it. This has with been no luck. in his life pretty much the majority of his life. Absolutely. Especially when lifespans back then were much shorter. Absolutely. This, this became his life mission and he just didn't know it. And again, I mean, you know, he could be kind of, you know, kind of like a drifter, doesn't have really family or anything like sure. that. But again, we're passing things on to friends yeah. and. <laughs> I'm so grateful, by the way, that this was passed along. And we'll talk about how this came through the chain of command, essentially. Mm -hmm. But yeah, where it got really hairy for a second is the fact that Morris, after these 20 years, passed it to an unnamed friend. This is where this could have been lost to time and we would have never heard about it. For the sake of clarity, I'm going to name this friend Spanky. Just so you know it's a made-up name and so you know who this unnamed friend did and what he did before he then passed it on. Sounds like a really terrible pirate name. Our <laughs> pirate Spanky. Uh, yes, Captain. My name's Thomas. <laughs> okay, so again, this is an unnamed individual. We're going to call him Spanky to make this super, super clear on how this went. So Spanky was able to decipher the second text using a modified version of the Declaration of Independence as a key. Mm -hmm. Let it out. It's okay. Okay. Now it's we're okay. now now we're getting into territory yep. of questioning if this is real. Yeah. Well. What, what did he go to like the museum? Sit there and like like literally um, national treasure. Yeah. And sit there uh -huh. and study the independence. That or while... he, he banged out a flash photo of the thing and uh, aged it oh, a true. couple days like I did when I was in ninth grade by accident. Wait. What? Let me walk you through it. Your flabbergastedness. It's a word is valid. Okay. I'm going to tell you how the Declaration of Independence comes into play, but why it comes into play is still a huge mystery okay, to me. Break so, it down for me. Each number on the cipher, remember it's like 115, 73, 24, 807, etc. It's just a bunch of numbers. Each number in the cipher corresponds to a numbered word, in this case in the Declaration of Independence, with some minor changes. For example, the first number in the cipher, the second cipher, is 115. That corresponds to the word instituted, but only the first letter of the word is taken, in this case, I. So we know the beginning of the second cipher is I, and then you go to the 73rd word, then you go to the 24th word, and you repeat until you have 
the solve for the second cipher. Now, the question that I feel like you're totally valid in having is, how did he know to think the Declaration of Independence? Yes. How did he jump to that? And maybe it's because it's been decades at this point that you shuffle through a bunch of, I don't know, documents and I figure just, it out. I, but we're still, how do you get to that? So thinking about it, like in the early 1800s, maybe the Declaration of Independence is one of the few key documents. We don't know what the literacy rate, maybe we can look that up, but the literacy rate of the early 1800s. So I don't know, maybe it's actually not as far-fetched as we would think here in 2023, but still, it's a jump. It's a leap. I mean, yeah, that puts it into more perspective, right? It's like the document. Uh, it's probably like one of the most well, I wouldn't be surprised if like it's one of the most well-written public things, like mm -hmm. aside from like books and stuff like that. So sure, it might be one of the things that was super mainstream back then, right? Right. But this is where things get, like I said, it's, I try to make it clear here because we jump forward a few decades now at this point. The ciphers were all somehow obtained by yet another person, perhaps a friend of Spanky's, James B. Ward. So now it is in the hands of at least the third new person, and the year is now 1885. So we have jumped 63 years since the initial handoff of the locked box. So two questions. Mm -hmm. One, how is it that the other members of the group, like, have not approached that's a great right question. like did did they not know who it was handed off to yeah they were worried about the the treasure being right. lost to time and now the treasure is hidden behind a bunch of cryptic ciphers like if did i they just kind of go ah, i guess i forgot like about if it was our treasure and i was like you know you're like oh if we're worried about it yada yada, yada. Mm -hmm. and i go look we drafted the cipher i handed it to a guy which guy? Don't worry. It's a. I got a guy. I got a guy. That's so. You're, wait. So sketch. you. So you wrote up a clear will and then gave it to someone trustworthy. I wrote up a puzzle and right. I gave it to a stranger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. Where are the other guys at? I mean, at this point, sixty right. years on, at this, probably at, passed. At this point, probably passed. That or they just but really trusted Beal, right? That's a lot of trust. That's a lot of one trust. person. I I'd say let me get an ocular pat down on that gold and make sure that it's actually getting you know Even handed then, out. I, I feel like I would push extremely hard to know who the person is. So at that point, either I can go to the person like because right. what if what if something happens to Beal, mm. right? And then all of a sudden it's like it's all lost. Walking down the street, you know, and you got a trust club someone. sandwich, chokes on an olive, and he's done for. Anything right? And then, then your gold is gone. Yeah, and then you have to trust that someone deciphers the thing right and then when they do divvies up this wealth good questions that's very massive good questions. also uh second question yeah so they pretty much discovered the pattern for the second cipher yes so i'm guessing the first and the third cipher are drastically different or the same just doesn't use a declaration to probably a it. different document got it. which is what makes it which is again what makes it so shocking that they it feels like they stumbled into the Declaration of Independence, but remember, right. 23 years, mm -hmm. it was sleeping, and then 20 years plus uh, to get there. Spanky had it for 20 years themselves. So, you know, it isn't just a, a leap of faith that they found the Declaration, but again, the fact that we couldn't find the other two, even to this day, is what makes it pretty shocking. Or maybe just luck. So, now at this point, James B. Ward has it. It's 1885. And Ward also could not decipher the code, so he decided to do something the other two didn't. He published all three of these ciphers in a pamphlet called the Beale Papers in order to really put this out to the crowd and enlist the task force 
as it were. That is... That's the okay, move, so right? at this point, Cypher 2 is decrypted. Cypher 2 is revealed, and I'll and read that's that for the one, you right And here. that's the one that tells them what the treasure is. Yes. It is only One is location, two, uh, two is what it is, Yes. three is the family member. Yeah, the name of the owners and the relatives of relatives. the owners. Yeah. Oh, man. Like, I just... Anyone random could... I mean, look, mm -hmm. at this point in the story, all the information is public, right? You're enlisting... Back then's task force members Absolutely. to get involved. There, that treasure could be discovered. Could be right. Someone could have stumbled into it and just not known. Someone, I'm talking about like someone literally could have saw that in the papers, deciphered it, got the treasure, and then just not say anything. Yeah. Yes. Like this could. Like, would be you be inclined to say, "Hey, no. I happen to find hell sixty no. million dollars worth of uh, I wouldn't gold say, and silver." Like, in I my wouldn't backyard. say I cracked it or anything like yeah. that. It's so. It feels sketch. If you just stumbled into some gold and silver. It's so out there to put it in the public's hands as opposed to like mm. maybe putting out like a, I don't want to say casting call, but like a call, right? To right. to the public of like, hey, getting involved, taking out names and 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 then, you know, kind of documenting uh, the people in the process. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Maybe uh, just a different way of thinking for different times. So let's talk about the second cipher in particular. It says this, quote, I have deposited in the county of Bedford, about four miles from Buford's, in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface of the ground, the following articles, belonging jointly to the parties whose names are given in number three herewith. Okay, so that validates that the third cipher right. is the names. This kind of gives a little bit of the location, but then it goes on to say more about what the treasure is. I mean, I think it's safe to say that the first cipher is the location. Mm -hmm. I think I so. I mean, it confirms the third. Mm -hmm. And at that point, what's the point of all this? Unless there's an actual... Right. Like, GPS to point right. out. Right. <laughs> I would really hope it would be like cardinal coordinates to be really specific. Yeah. But as the second cipher continues, it says this. Quote, The first deposit consisted of 1014 pounds of gold and 3,812 pounds of silver, deposited November 1819. The second was made December 1821 and consisted of 1,907 pounds of gold and 1,288 of silver, also jewels, obtained in St. Louis in exchange to save transportation and valued at $13,000. And then it goes on to say a few other things. And the final excerpt I have is, quote, the above is securely packed in iron pots with iron covers. The vault is roughly lined with stone and the vessels rest on solid stone and are covered with others. Paper number one describes the exact locality of the vault so that no difficulty will be had finding it. So there you have it. Both ciphers one and three go now from theory to fact because cipher two clearly describes. It's just so convenient now that we had the second one is the one that's solved. Yeah. Because it specifically talks about the other two. I mean. It's almost like they're like someone tipped them off. Check out the Declaration of Independence. I just, who, right? right? Like, who would know to tip who Beal. off? <laughs> you know Beal, what I mean? Like, maybe one of the the, the hunters true. or you're, you're, people yeah. on the expedition. Um, that's a lot. It's a lot. Of, like, gold, silver. I do like the little piece there that, because um, obviously, is a lot to mine, and that's a lot of riches. I do like the little piece of they uh, bartered some for, like, jewels and stuff like that. You know, like, why not diversify the uh, the pool, you know, mm -hmm. in case silver goes down, gold goes in. You know, you still have those worries even back then of, like, 
what am I investing? Am I investing the gold? Am I investing silver? And yeah. It's good to like divvy some of that up. I'm surprised I didn't do more. Right. But then again, I don't know. Like this is before the gold rush, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe gold was extremely valuable. Or maybe they just felt like they got their fill. I mean, we're talking almost 3,000 pounds of gold. That's that is 2,921 pounds of gold or just over 1,300 kilograms. 5,100 pounds of silver or just over 2,300 kilograms. And then the jewels come in because maybe it was the abundance of silver. Maybe it was diversifying their portfolios or what have I you. I mean, yeah, seriously. They, they traded in some of the silver via exchange to get jewels because... Yeah, I mean, why not? You have an abundance of it. The other thought that I have, um, this is so long ago, right? Hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm always surprised with these type of mysteries that there hasn't been like an apartment complex or a condo that right. accidentally dug it up. And what would they do if they did dig it up? Would they have to report it? Could they just go, oh God, it's like finding Jumanji and the I, foundation. I tell you, you, know, you I, just take I, it. I tell you right now, we're spending the whole night moving that Ooh, around. We're partying. We are moving that around and uh, trying to get rid of every piece of evidence. Yeah. Like, so that's the history. I mean, all the way up to today of the Beale ciphers, not a lot of movement. We've got the second one solved. First and two, jury is still out. And it's just a matter of, is it using the declaration as well? Or is it a totally different document? Are the ciphers solved in the same way? Honestly, gonna, um, I'm going to squash my previous thought of what if all of this is just shenanigans. Okay. I, I do believe that like... You think something's happening here? It's either happening or it's not happening. Not someone, not the, the gray area of someone just wanted to make a cipher and, yeah. and thought it was fun. Because that's also always a theory to me. Um, I'd be curious. I also really like the thought that I had earlier since all this was public that someone like broke the cipher got it and was just gone Silent. to the wind yeah we talk of a lot about people that go i did it or i claim this or yeah. like they get heavily involved, oddly enough like heavily i public. was the murderer like no you weren't right. why are you claiming that we never talk about because you never hear about the people that just silently are involved yeah. like maybe someone that did solve it and went mine illuminati oh all right, well, let's talk about the investigation phase. Before By the you way, jump in, I will oh. say another piece that I was reading about right now. So you were talking about the jewels, and mm -hmm. then the papers mentioned St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, Morris received a letter from Beale months after Beale gave him the box. From, oh. And uh, in that letter, Beale supposedly said that a friend in St. Louis would be sending along a key to the ciphers. But Got it. nothing ever came from that. Now that's interesting, because... To your point about St. Louis and maybe the exchange for gems, I hope it's not lost to time, but would there be some sort of receipt for that exchange? Any track record of who did it, who it came from, who the silver like came from or whatever? And then if you have that, you can maybe figure out who would have the key then. Like, hey, I'd like to exchange this silver for these gems. Also, they slide across a manila folder and they say, there's a, an encryption device in this folder. You're going to give it to a strange man in Lynchburg, Virginia, but wait 10 years. That guy might have done what you're saying, which is, nah, throws it out. I got my silver. You got your gems. I don't care about whatever this is. Yeah. I or, mean, or they just uh, solved it and then passed. No, why would you pass it along, though? Doesn't make any sense. Maybe in case one of the family members came back. At that point, though, you, you've passed. I don't know. I don't know. There's so like, many. You're there's also so much trust. Now, 
you're you're in you've given this a stranger mm-hmm. ciphers to your treasure then you've given another person not necessarily a stranger could be one of the group members i don't know the keys to the cipher why i don't know that's, that, that, that's the biggest mystery to me pretty wild. why is that the route that you took for treasures that will set up your family for generations right do you th- he must have had you know a heavy pocket where he's like maybe I skimmed some off the top of that three thousand pounds. You, you know what too? Yeah, I mean, who's you know? to say they didn't just skim a bunch and went? I'm good for the next 10, 20 lifetime. You know? Yeah, I mean, once all these men passed, it all comes down to the trust of these two individuals that have either right. the key or the box. That is flimsy hope. Very. Hello there, Task Force. It's that moment in the episode where we take a little pause in the mystery and I get to talk to you directly. Oh, I didn't even say my name this time. It's Trevor. You know that. Uh, Where we get to do a little bit of housekeeping notes on what is going on in the Red Web sphere here at the HQ. We're building and tearing down and rebuilding as always. It's been a few weeks now, but I just want to say because we record these in advance. Thank you all so much for really coming out to that Sippy Cup of Knowledge live stream. You guys managed to sell 500 cups of knowledge in 30 minutes. Oh my God. God. And if you missed out, I'm very sorry. Head to store.roosterteeth.com. Go to the Sippy Cup of Knowledge. It's going to say sold out, but hit that little thing that says, I want it. Or it's probably more like, uh, remind me when it's back in stock. Because we see that. We see those numbers. And when we get enough and it constitutes another reorder, then we can get that thing rolling again and get more knowledge rolling out there, spilling out you. Okay, it's not spilling. The lid is tight. It's nice. The straw is good. Everything like that. Anyway, Sippy Cup of Knowledge. Thank you all so much. Got a lot of other things in the store as well if you want to support us. Ooh, and another thing that we're super excited about is RTX. This summer, July 7th through 9th, Red Web is building a presence at the Rooster Teeth Convention here in Austin, Texas. Once again, July 7th through 9th. We're going to have a Red Web escape room. We're working on the annual Meeting of the Minds, which is going to be a Red Web panel that we're trying to turn into kind of a live show. And we have so much more planned, but not yet confirmed. So stay tuned for all those details and more at the end of this segment to hear more about RTX. But with that said, I want to talk about some of today's fantastic sponsors. This episode of Red Web is sponsored by Babbel. So many of us have goals for ourselves, like learning a new skill, getting a new job, or traveling more. And a great way to meet one of those new skill goals is to learn a new language with the language learning app Babbel. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy, bite-sized language lessons, you can feel confident no matter where the year takes you. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in a new language in as little as three weeks. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 150 language experts. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages. You've heard me say it before, but I really enjoy Babbel because I just like indulging in different cultures and different languages. Back in school, middle school, high school, and a little bit of college, I dabbled with Spanish and French. And using Babbel, it's an easy way to kind of keep that fresh, knock off some of the rust. And, uh, you know, me and my significant other, we like to speak a little bit of French to each other every now and then. It's kind of our side love language. So uh, it's just nice to be able to dabble with other languages like that. Right now, you can get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash redweb. Once again, that's babbel.com slash redweb for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by Rocket Money. Do you know how much your monthly subscriptions cost? 
If you don't know exactly how much you are spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills, all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forget about. Rocket Money will quickly and easily identify your subscriptions for you so you can stop paying for the ones that you don't want. Over 3 million people use Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 per year. Fredo, I know you use Rocket Money. Let me know what you think. I use Rocket Money every week. It's a place where I can consolidate all of my accounts. And then from there, I get an email that tells me how like, I'm spending all of my money, what subscriptions I have, where I'm overpaying, and how I can save money. It's easy, it's convenient, and I love it. Ooh, that sounds nice. And if you want to be like Fredo, you can stop throwing your money away right now. Cancel those unwanted subscriptions. Let Rocket Money take all that tedium out of your life and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash redweb. That's rocketmoney.com slash redweb. And just again, for those in the back, rocketmoney.com slash redweb. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by RTX. I talked a little bit about this at the top of the segment, but RTX will be in Austin from July 7th to the 9th. Early bird badges are on sale until April 2nd at rtxaustin.com, but don't worry. You can buy tickets on this very same website all the way up to the event itself. You just might not get those early bird discounts. But if you don't know about RTX, that website has so much to tell you about it and what has come in the past years. But let me give you a little taste as what you can expect on the expo floor this year. Of course, you have uh, the Red Web Escape Room. We're partnering with the number one escape room company in the country, right across the street from the convention center. We're gonna have a, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, oh, I don't know how much I wanna say, but it's gonna be a Bigfoot cryptid kind of experience where you have to escape a cabin. And I'm just gonna leave it at that. Red Web is going to have a handprint on that thing. We're going to take our little baby hands and get them all over that cabin. But yeah, if you're excited for that, we're going to have that. Like I said, Red Web's going to have a panel. We're also going to do all sorts of signings and photo ops. And I want to do a day, one of the days, where we do an absolute red out, where everybody from the task force wears red. We show up on the convention floor. We do a giant photo op in the middle of it, see how much red we can spread on the Expo floor. But there are also some other brands and other podcasts that are going to be there. You have the Face Museum. I don't know if you know them, but they're friends of ours and other podcasts. The Face team will have a museum that is prominently displaying some of the most ridiculous and precious collector items that they've gotten their hands on. If you know them, you know they like to do unboxings and card breakings and all sorts of things like that. So they're going to have a lot of things there, a lot of surprises. We also have Achievement Hunter Mini Golf, one of the other brands we work with. And Fredo and I actually are part of that team. We're going to have some uh, putt-putt on the floor. So that's just a little taste. We're trying to make sure that RTX is all about the experience this year, very immersive. So if you want to basically tron yourself into the internet, you can do that at RTX. Once again, rtxaustin.com, early bird badges until April 2nd. And the event is in Austin, July 7th through the 9th. I'll see you at RTX. With all that said, let's head right back into the mystery. So let's talk about the investigation and see if any other details come out that help us with our questions. So since the publication of the Beale ciphers, the other two codes still have yet to be solved. That's about 160 years now of Whoa. that part not being solved. So Buford's, by the way, that I referred to back in the cipher text, it's a tavern. Now in the area surrounding where that tavern once was in Bedford County, countless expeditions have been undertaken to figure out if we can figure out where this treasure is. At this point, they're just going, it's like holes out there. They're just digging, going for it. Shia LaBeouf is scooping up six six foot holes left and right. 
trying to find this treasure. I mean, why not? That's it's not hard to convince people to like, look, there's a lot of treasure here, enough for all of us to set mm -hmm. ourselves up for generations. You want it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take weekends to do that. Right. Well, what makes it even more interesting is that apparently there is a Virginia law that essentially emboldened people to dig anywhere they could think of. There's no real restriction on where you can go searching. Whereas in most states, I would imagine you can't just go digging in public, private, or otherwise national property. You're talking about like nowadays? I'm not sure. Christian, do we, do we know when this was? I'm sure laws have changed. Yeah, but... I don't know if it's still active, but I can try to see. I, I doubt it's active now, but then also, I mean, the mystery of recovered the, the um the author had the wrote the book and yeah. had uh, treasures that yes. were scattered in the little like pots. Mm -hmm. um, was that the secret? It's the secret. I think it was a secret. There was one buried in San Francisco. We can't just go digging around. Yeah. Yes, that was the secret. Yeah, yeah. Go on, blow that. But uh, the law in particular It is currently illegal to treasure hunt Got in Virginia. It. Yeah. Okay, but the law that made it a little bit like the Wild West for a second was the fact that, and maybe people skirted other laws, but basically if you found buried treasure, doesn't matter where you found it, could have been on somebody else's property, you find it, you keep it. And so because of that, people started going, well, whatever, I know there's buried treasure in this town, I'm gonna go buck wild looking for it. So I'm sure there are actual restrictions as to where you can dig, but people started going, doesn't matter, I'm gonna start digging. Oh yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. Of course, over the years, countless treasure hunters have taken their chances at trying to crack this code, figuring out where specifically it could have been. Specifically, there are brothers, George and Clayton Hart, who analyzed these papers for decades. Clayton gave up, actually, in 1912, and eventually his brother George gave up 40 years later in 1952. He had a lot more patience for this mystery. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just something you come back to every now and then. Why not? Mm-hmm. There was another individual, Hiram Herbert Jr., who first became interested in 1923 and continued his obsession through the 1970s. It almost feels like a curse in a sense that someone is burdened with the, the search for this treasure. And, you know, as one person obsesses over it and they begin to exit their obsession, somebody else picks up the mantle and they start looking for it. I mean, treasure hunting is... It's a gamble. You're gambling time. You're, mm -hmm. you know, you're gambling uh, effort, energy, and gambling is addicting. So absolutely. I mean, the risk reward is tremendous. Right. Then you get locked into that vicious cycle of like, I've spent 20 years. Oh yeah. Why am I going to stop now? Right. Sunk cost fallacy. At this point, you know, it's been determined that the code is so complex, it's actually caught the attention of the U.S. Cipher Bureau. This is the first national civilian intelligence organization that was created after World War I, for what it's worth. And they also went by the name The Black Chamber, which sounds epic. Okay. I just met a totally obsidian like name. courtroom where everyone's like, what mystery are we going to crack today? I feel like uh, in our basement's basement here at the task force headquarters, uh, yeah. we, need a, we need a black chamber. I just feel like we need that now. I feel like those are easy signups. Right. We could right. put like a paper outside the mm -hmm. door, signups for, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? The, the, <laughs> the cipher group. <laughs> It doesn't gotta be doesn't have to be complicated. Right. Okay. We could just do signups. Everyone understands signups. <laughs> Everyone understands signups, unless the instructions are in a cipher. Yeah, actually the the Cypher Bureau was the was a government organization and it's actually known as kind of the forerunner of the NSA. That makes more sense. Okay. So than what my notes say. Yeah. So I mean, so so story wise, yeah, it makes so much sense. It's more organized. Right. And but so I mean, task force wise, I would say that it doesn't. It's still signups. Right. We're still signing up. We're still making the chamber. <laughs> it's gonna happen. 
Now, for what it's worth, the Cipher Bureau was disbanded in 1929. Now, most interestingly, Colonel William Friedman, who was the leader of the U.S. Army Signal Intelligence Service, or the SIS, caught wind of these ciphers. And in the 1930s, he tried to solve the ciphers in his spare time, and he actually made the Beale ciphers part of the training program due to their unsolvable legacy. Training them to fail? I don't know. Training them on, yeah, a very, like a brick wall. Okay. That or they're just like, listen, this is uh, this is your golden goose. You yeah. know, you're coming here to crack ciphers and you will, but this is a great example of like our Enigma code. Right. Right. This is, which is totally out of time for what I'm talking about. But basically this is a cipher to pine for. Yeah. To yearn to solve. Like a like an Ender's Game type situation. Hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, especially since you know the second one is yeah. solvable, the first and third must be right by that logic. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I don't know, man. If I saw this in training, I'd go. I think I'm gonna try something else. I feel like you can get someone hooked on trying to get that solved. Then again, like yeah. you, you, their job is to just look at ciphers and decode things. So right. Now, with regards to these ciphers, he believed them to be quote diabolical ingenuity specifically designed to lure the unwary reader and so kind of to your point maybe that's why he was using them regardless of being unsolvable or mm -hmm. not he used them in the training almost as a way to hook these very green cryptographers right into the idea of wanting to seek knowledge wanting to train and wanting to go deeper in his institution or what have you so searches for beale's treasure at the end of the day have continued through time all the way up to now and online communities have still remained relatively active on sites like TreasureNet and Expedition Unknown, which is a show they actually featured a story on this as recently as 2015. So I think that this mystery, this treasure hunt, will be essentially timeless. The only unfortunate part is, I think, and we'll, and we'll talk about this in the theories, but I think some of the necessary steps to solving this treasure hunt have themselves been lost to time. With so much time passing, I'm just... I'm I'm convinced that either someone discovered it and said nothing, or it's been blown up with in like uh, construction. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Because I doubt they buried it that deep in a location that's so remote. Yeah. Because yeah, you got to think over hundreds of years, we're expanding, and and you know nowadays it's like. Oh, is that a free 10 feet of land that someone's going to buy it? Someone's going to build a lemonade stand. There. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's going to be used. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's rough. All right. Let's talk about some theories. Was it a government plot? Oh, what? Mm -hmm. That's a theory? We're going to get in there, baby. One of the most commonly believed theories surrounding the Beale ciphers is that the government actually cracked the code years ago. Fredo, maybe they figured it out. Of all people that went to the government, damn. <laughs> mm -hmm. So as the theory goes, it says once cracked, they extracted the riches and kept quiet about their new wealth, which very nicely falls into line with what you're thinking, though you're thinking probably more of an individual rather than a government entity. Oh, yeah. But Friedman's notes on the Beale ciphers are publicly available, and there's no reason the government or the NSA would hide their solve. So that is the wrinkle there. It's a very short theory. It doesn't try to connect any other dots other than like, well, I don't know, government does things government mysterious but I, I don't know if i completely subscribe to like there's no reason why the government would hide their solves what's the reason for the government saying hey we found it mm. i don't know i mean i guess they like put it to rest but maybe i think mostly because they were so public about the cipher part and the puzzle part oh 
Yeah. But I don't think that that means they then owe you an update. True. Who knows? But it's also like, why would they deviate from that path? Right, right. Since they were so open about it. Good question. Yeah. The next theory is all about Robert Morris. And considering he was the first man to hear about the riches, and he was the first person to get that lockbox in the very beginning, what if he was the one who was actually able to crack the code? He didn't open it apparently for 23 years, but what if he actually spent those years trying to solve right. it? Right. And I mean someone had contact information with him mm -hmm. who had the key. Right. And maybe they did reach out. And maybe Morse goes, oh, I don't know. I didn't get any key. So he spends 23 years trying to solve this as the theory goes. It's always possible that he cracked the code, kept the riches for himself, rearranged the cipher, created a new one, maybe just to throw future treasure hunters off the trail. Who knows? Another suspicion surrounding Morris is that the papers claimed that he'd been working as the innkeeper for the Washington Hotel in 1820. But interestingly, records retrieved from that time show that he actually didn't start his position there until 1823, making his credibility questionable. According to the Beale papers, Thomas Beale chose Morris due to his, quote, unblemished character and as a, quote, old Virginia gentleman. Morris reportedly lost his fortune many years before and remained kind and generous. So there's some motive, though the background information on Morris that we could find comes from the Beale papers, and there are several paragraphs on how good his character was. So maybe there's some biased information there and that the true history behind the man Morris is more intricate than we know. I mean, I get that, like, um, the thought of he had treasure and he lost it and that kind of humbled him and sent him on a cleaner path. But I don't, I don't know, like, I feel like you also kind of go, oh, this is a second jumpstart to my life that just mm -hmm. fell into my lap. Mm -hmm. And I know what it's like to have money. So here I go again. Right. He'd recently had it, lost it, another chance to regain mm -hmm. it, perhaps. And it also answers the human element, which is curiosity. You said it at the top. Like, did he have a 23-year-long patience or did he actually kind of Make that moves. night go, yeah. I'm going to peek. I'm gonna just take a little gander. Cause you don't know what's in that. Could be all sorts of stuff. The theory does cover the question I had of why hand it off, mm. which in here, the theory kind of describes like, okay, kind of like what I was thinking, right? Maybe like maybe, because like, before I said, why hand it off? And then I was like, well, maybe hand it off just because the people that could come looking for it kind of go, oh, well, it's in some other hands now. I gave up on it. And, and so, like, yeah, I mean, he could be smart enough to find, like, break it, find it, and then recode it to then hand off and then keep the wild goose chase going. Yeah, possible. Let me know what you think about this next theory. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's one of the quintessentials, but there's a lot of juice on this uh, bone. What? <laughs> we, got, we got juicy bones. Here we go. <laughs> Okay, so others, when it comes to the theories as to what's going on with the ciphers, there's a lot of people out there that believe that these are simply a hoax. But who created the hoax and why? Well, as the theory goes, that this was a hoax created by James B. Ward. Remember, he was not the first nor the second individual. It went Morris and then unnamed friend, we're calling Spanky, then James B. Ward. So think about that. The pamphlet containing the ciphers, again, James B. Ward also is the one that made it public. Yeah. So the pamphlet containing the ciphers was not free. That's something worth noting. It cost 50 cents to purchase. Oh. 
Uh, there you go. Because you were questioning that. You were talking like, well, why hand this out to the public for free? Because then anyone can silently scoop it up. Right. It wasn't Ooh. free. According to an online inflation calculator, that would be about $15 to this day. And in a world where we're talking about streaming services and a lot of things end up in that sub $15 category, you know, I don't know if this is something I'd go in on for 15 bucks. A hope, a prayer, and a dream, and a mystery? Well, okay, mystery, yeah. Puzzle? Okay, maybe, yeah. I mean, at that point, isn't it? <laughs> aren't you... I, I, I'd get it. I'd, okay, I'll be honest. <laughs> I mean, look, I'd get you it. would I'd get, get it. it. Come Twice. on. <laughs> yeah. I gotta get two copies. I'm gonna mess one up, get coffee stains on it. Um, I mean, if this is... If we're now in the time period of the gold rush, it's all like hotcakes. Right. Do you want to go to California and actually pan the rivers and hunt for gold mines? Or do you want to find somebody who got in at the ground floor yep. and buried it in Bedford? Mm -hmm. yeah, you know this, what I mean? Yeah. That's a very valid point. Yeah. Or, it is worth noting, though, that at the time the papers were published, it was 1885. That's 30 years after the California gold yes, rush. Yes, right. So oh, it's, oh, it's basically it's saying, like, remember that? Yeah, They're all dried up. Missed the gold rush. It's all dried up. Here's oh. the last second opportunity. Oh man, that's compelling. I'd pay, I'd pay I'd pay a dollar thirty bucks. I mean, at this man at this point you would sell. A kid. They're like, no, no, no. It's, it's fifty cents. I'm bidding against myself. Right. Fifty five cents. You're like, sure, it's a flat fee. Um, now it it it's worth mentioning. It's unknown how many copies were sold, so we don't know really how lucrative this idea was. But as we're kind of understanding here, it it seems like it would be a very good promise, given that we're in the. Uh, the dry ages of the gold rush, mm -hmm. why not say, hey, listen, there's a juicy bone somewhere uh, with lots of good gold that preceded all of this. But reportedly, most of the copies that were sold were destroyed in a fire. That's, that's all we have on that. What? Okay. Just going to throw that out. Okay. Now, many people believe that the other two ciphers are unsolvable because there is no treasure to be found. And that the second cipher was solved, air quotes, to make the treasure appear real. We kind of touched on that a little bit. When, yeah. when the second cipher so vividly points to the other two, could that just be a misdirect? It does seem a little flimsy how the logic came to be that it was solved via the Declaration of Independence, but also luck is a thing, you know? That's how a lot of just, ciphers are solved. Yeah, Stumbling I mean, into people it. have free time and then just want to send a people and strangers on a wild goose chase. Just seems mm. pretty elaborate for what end. That's an interesting thought. So that part aside, another point in the hoax column is the timing of it all. Some people are looking at the area that Beale supposedly found the treasure, all the gold and the silver, etc. And then they go, well, the gold rush didn't really start for many decades after that. So is that another origin for this being a hoax? That said, there's a wrinkle within that thought, mm -hmm. which is there are journals of a man by the name of Jacob Fowler who explored the Southwest from 1821 to 1822. And he mentions in a story from the Pawnee and from the Crow that could be referencing Beale's crew. And using his words, he says, they speak on the most friendly terms of the white man and say there are about 35 in number. Basically, all that is to say is there is a small wrinkle here. There is some documentation that says, no, gold and silver was found in this specific area around that time period. They aren't the only people to have found it. And it isn't necessarily a hoax just because they found gold prior to the big rush of it all. I, yeah, I don't think there's, you could really lean on the the whole, like, 
it was before the gold rush. So it's a hoax. Like, right. That just means there's an abundance of this stuff everywhere. Right. People aren't going nuts to mine the hell out of this. Right. I, I, it's an interesting thought to say, well, no one else was finding it. But I'm like, right. there are some documentations pointing to it. In fact, according to author Simon Singh, a Cheyenne legend actually speaks of people taking gold and silver and then burying it in the East. So again, there's some documentation that seems to counter this part of the hoax theory, but with time, a lot of these documents have been lost. It's just really hard to, to, to yeah. pin it down. I mean, if either of those documents are reality, that really points to this being an actual thing. Right, right. I'd, I'd love to do almost more research just specifically on trying to figure out has anyone else mm -hmm. found gold themselves. And of course, there are some documents that point to that. Right. Of course, you have people from that area at that point in time telling stories of the Beale crew. I don't know. I'll say, though, like, if I was a part of that group, I mean, there's a handful of people. So obviously, you know, loose lips. It's harder to seal a bunch of lips as opposed to like a couple. Um, I'm like, don't say anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. and we're going to take years to mine this out. Don't tell anyone what we're doing. Right. Like at all. Right. You, you want to be rich? Shut up. <laughs> right. Just shut up. Dig it out. Move on. Yes. As the theory continues on, talking about a hoax, it's possible that Thomas Beale himself just simply never existed. The problem is, when you go this far back in time, documents become hard to track down, impossible to follow, you have a lot of word of mouth. In fact, a lot of the documents that we've found from this time period can be considered dubious at best, or perhaps falsified, maybe never existed. They're missing a lot of the times. So a lot of flimsy connection on this one which could answer why we thought the roots of this mystery felt so flimsy themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's just with any mystery that just dates back a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a sub-theory. We're going to continue on with the idea of the hoax, but there's another version of the hoax theory. This one's a little bit more interesting, in fact. Others believe that poet Edgar Allan Poe was the one who wrote the Beale ciphers. So Poe himself lived in Richmond, Virginia from 1820 to 1827, around the very same time that Beale would have encountered Morris. And Poe was interested in cryptography, actually featuring it in the short story, The Gold Bug. And he even advertised his skills in newspapers asking for ciphers to decode. So he's out there saying, hey, if you got a puzzle, if you got a cipher, I want to take my, my jab at it. I want to solve it. Basically, this theory is to say that this famous author in a very similar area at the very same time, made up this whole idea. And so that it's essentially just a story that has now been taken as fact. I always like when theories kind of pull like either other mysteries mm -hmm. or like try and connect to like big figures during that time, like with the whole Jack the Ripper thing. Right. Um, it was the... Um, the master the servant girl servant girl annihilator, annihilator from austin texas yeah that moved to london and, and was you know that was jack the ripper mm -hmm. i will say it's just I, I feel like it's such an easy like point to mm -hmm. in that case there's like you know famous author who likes ciphers boom he it made gives this a nice up poetic ending you yeah. kind of go oh well that's nice i mean it, maybe it was just written all along it's in a, in a way, it's it's the it was all a dream theory, mm -hmm. right? When the character of a story like, oh, let's just solve the matrix by saying it was all a dream, yeah. right? But the wrinkle with this particular angle is that Poe died in 1849, 36 years before the Beale ciphers were published. 
The pamphlets mention the Civil War, and the writing style is very different from Poe's usual diction. So, while it seems kind of nice and like you could definitely go, oh, okay, maybe this is fictional, at least maybe not from Edgar Allan Poe himself. Yeah, I mean, at that point, right, by the time you pass, very, very few people knew about it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't public information, like you're saying. So you'd have to have direct ties to it. Right. That or someone found his postmortem writings, adjusted them to add new modernized details after the 36 years. Wild. Then published it. I mean, so I'll be real. Christopher Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, has done very similar things with Tolkien's writings of Lord of the Rings. Mm. He's like, listen, you have all this, all this writing. He's filled in the gaps with his own answers, his own interpretations, and then published them after. So in a much less fantastic way, that could be what happened here. Do I think that? I don't know. I don't necessarily yeah. feel that way, but it's interesting. Yeah. It really is. But the idea of a hoax, the more you think about it, kind of, I feel like unfortunately makes the most sense because of all of the immediate gut check questions we had at the top. Like, why wouldn't you just keep the treasure? Why wouldn't you just divvy it up? Why wouldn't you take it to, I don't know, a bank? What do you do with gold? You put it in a bag in a vault in your house? Like, why not? I don't know. I mean, they were trading it for jewels, so. Yeah. So that's that's pretty much it. That's, those are the theories that try to attempt to answer the Beale ciphers. Are there any questions that you have remaining regarding this particular mystery? No frustrations. No, no, no. I mean, the frustration is, I why do this whole song and dance? Mm. You got it. You're rich. Divvy it up. Enjoy the rest of your life. Know that future generations will enjoy theirs. Yeah. Done. I think that's the frustration. Is that the whole rigmarole of this cipher thing and the strangers and generations passing it down? It's like right. unnecessary. But that's just my own personal sure like take on it. Man, I, I want this to be that, real. I, I love a good, I love a good treasure mystery. Yeah, that's why I want this to be. I want to go find it, or that, or even if you can't find it, there's something enjoyable about just going. All right, these are the clues. These are how people have interpreted it. Maybe we find our own interpretation and go that way. But it, pro the problem is the clues are all hidden behind code on this particular one. Oh yeah, how would we produce that? Say if like we had the ciphers, we're taking a look at it, we mm -hmm. cracked it. How would we, we produce that? Off, like silently. Oh, no, 100%. When, you don't gut. produce it till you got gold in your hands. <laughs> well, I mean, I, gut, here, gut check is there's yeah. two options, right? I think content-wise, you go, okay, you record the before. Don't release into, you know, mm -hmm. obviously, none of this gets released till after. Then record the process of getting it. And then the post-process, the post-like kind of episode of like, this is what we did with it, et cetera. Yeah. Then you release all that after all that's said and done. Right. Option two find it say nothing well I, I i still feel like you're right that if this was found they just didn't say anything but why would you why would you uncle sam's gonna come out with his handout saying listen i need that you yeah. know or people know that you got you know what i mean i essentially kind of think it's like the lottery right right also also just like the lottery kind of puts a target on your back i'm that's not saying, I'm saying an assassin's coming for you that's what i'm getting at it, but it suddenly, puts a target on your back in the sense of like people might want to rob you but also like, lawsuits, uh, lawsuits, all sorts people of people trying things. to finagle their way mm -hmm. legally to get a piece of it. Mm -hmm. And then also you got a lot of people that are just going to come to you and be like, I don't have enough money to pay for my child's like, sure. Doctor's appointment. And it's like, how are you not going to give? You know, right. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of like, because lottery winners eventually become public information and people showing up to their houses and being like, I don't have anything. Could you please? Right. And it's like, oh, my heart, you know? And so it's like. It's a very morally complex yeah. situation. Don't say anything. Take what's good for you. And uh, maybe a little bit more for like the generation after. Mm-hmm. Donate the rest. Man. Right. Anonymous. Boom. Right. Gone. Silence makes it all a little easier. Yeah. But I like the idea of doing it like the jinx. We film it all, you craft it, and then not until the end do you release it. And then, uh, then you get the confession at the end where I go, well, I dug it all up, of course. It's mine. I found it. It's mine. The money is mine. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I run off and I disappear. And then it's just Fredo in the chair. I've got my bags of gold and jewels. <laughs> oh, my. My Take- jewels to fund my ghoul hunts. <laughs> You can have the silver. I don't want that. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why. Uh, but yeah, that's been the Beal Ciphers. I'm really happy we finally, uh, no, no pun intended, dug into another treasure hunt. Okay, it was a pun. It was intended. <laughs> but it's been a while. It's been a while since we've had a treasure hunt. Task Force, if there's another treasure hunt out there that you would love for us to explore, ooh, we're hungry for another one. Hit us up at RedWebPod on social. Or if you like the old ways, RedWeb at RoosterTeeth.com. You can type us up an email. And, uh, and if you do, just be aware, we might say your first name to give you credit for sharing your ideas with us because you guys have sent us so many awesome mysteries and we want to make sure that you, uh, that you know we might say your name here on the show to give you credit for, yeah, a little shout out. for pointing us uh, to a certain direction. But with that said, Fredo, I'll see you right back here next week for another mystery. You know what they say? A lot of juice on that bone. They all, <laughs> they all say that. <laughs>